Hello and welcome to the Renaissance Polymath. I'm your host, Toby Gagnon, and on this episode, I would like to discuss strange disappearances. Let's go ahead and get things started. When someone mentions or talks about strange disappearances, it usually conjures up images of mythical creatures, beasts, aliens, UFOs, dimensional tears, strange lights, weather conditions, and many more seemingly unbelievable and impossible circumstances and explanations. Sometimes it's about people. Some are high profile. Sometimes it's just sheer numbers. Other times it's about the location or the vehicle choice. Instead of talking about one specific disappearance or focusing on just individuals, I'm going to introduce you to many different things on this episode. As always, I recommend you do your own in-depth research on the stories that pique your interest and maybe even take a few detours to check out some other examples and stories you may come across along the way. First, let's start with a person. Arguably, the most notable missing persons case is that of famed pilot Amelia Earhart. Amelia was born on July 24, 1897, in Atchison, Kansas, to Samuel and Amy. At the age of 10, her family moved to Des Moines, Iowa, where she saw her first airplane at the Iowa State Fair. Self-described as fond of reading, Amelia was homeschooled until 1909, when she entered the public school as a 7th grader at the age of 12. Her family moved a few more times, and she eventually graduated from a strange high school with very few friends in Chicago. After briefly attending college in Pennsylvania, she studied to become a nurse's aide and performed those duties through the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. She eventually became ill and was hospitalized for two months with pneumonia and maxillary sinusitis, which is basically just a sinus infection. Being as antibiotics weren't yet discovered, she endured numerous painful minor surgeries that attempted to relieve the pressures and drain the mucus from her sinuses. These weren't completely successful, however, and Amelia often endured severe headaches and other ailments that would later affect her ability to pilot aircraft. Amelia's first flight was on December 28, 1920 in Long Beach, California, with renowned air racer Frank Hawks. She knew from that 10-minute flight that in the skies, in a cockpit, was where she belonged. In the months preceding this flight, she worked many different jobs. She also ended up borrowing money from both her mother and her father, but was eventually enrolled in flying lessons, and on January 3, 1921, she took her first one. Within six months, she purchased her first aircraft and just a couple of years later became only the 16th female to be issued a pilot's license. Amelia set many records and was the first female to do many things in her time. These included being the first female to fly at 14,000 feet in 1922, the first female passenger to fly across the Atlantic Ocean in 1928, the first female to solo pilot an aircraft across the Atlantic Ocean in 1932, the first pilot to make a solo flight from Hawaii to California in 1935, and set no less than seven speed and distance records between 1930 and 1935. To say she was accomplished and good at what she did would be a vast understatement, which is part of the reason why the circumstances of her disappearance are so baffling. On June 1st, 1937, Earhart, who was accompanied only by her navigator and radio man, Fred Noonan, departed Miami, Florida to attempt to circumnavigate the globe. That is, to fly completely around the Earth. Things went well for the first month, with only minor incidences and repairs needed. On July 2nd, Earhart and Noonan departed from Ley, New Guinea, with the destination of Howland Island, over 2,500 miles away. 
Her aircraft was loaded with supplies and 1,100 gallons of fuel, but even then, that distance was nearing the maximum range of her bird. The United States, looking to assist and put Amelia in the spotlight of the world, sent out the U.S. CGS Itasca to Howland Island to make communications with Earhart and Noonan and help guide them to the tiny island in the middle of the world's largest ocean. They were to communicate with the pilot and her passenger via radio on 3105 and 6210 kilohertz during the night and day, respectively. However, the Itasca's equipment, for whatever reason, couldn't transmit voice on those frequencies, only Morse code. As Amelia and Fred neared the area they believed the island to be, they radioed in at 6.14 a.m. requesting the ship begin its transmissions for RDF, which is Radio Direction Finding, so they could hone in on the signal and land on the island. It was only at this point that the radio man for the Itasca realized they could not transmit an RDF at that frequency with the equipment they had on board. At 6.45 a.m., Amelia again sent a transmission requesting the RDF as she estimated they were only approximately 100 miles out. Sometime between 7.30 a.m. and 7.40 a.m., Earhart sent the following message. Earhart on NWSEZ, running out of gas, only half hour left, can't hear us at all. We hear her and are sending on 3105 and 500 at the same time, constantly. Another log shows another call. K-H-A-Q-Q, the call sign of Amelia's plane, calling Itasca. We must be on you, but cannot see you. Gas is running low. Been unable to reach you by radio. We are at 1,000 feet. Another message at 7.58 a.m. states she can't hear the Itasca and requests they send voice on 3105 so she can get their bearing. As we already know, this wasn't possible for the ship, so they sent Morse code instead. Earhart acknowledged receiving the signals, but was unable to determine their location. The ship's signal strength sensors indicated Earhart and Noonan must have been in the immediate area, but they were unable to see or hear anything. The ship's boiler was run to put thick, oily smoke in the air as an attempt for visual for the pilot and her passenger. All of this still didn't help, and Amelia's last known transmission came at 8.43 a.m. We are on the line 157337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 6210 kilocycles. Wait. We are running on line north and south. The search for Earhart and Noonan began immediately with the Itasca, but later involved the Navy, the Coast Guard, and the Air Force. The search lasted until July 19, 1937, and cost an estimated $4 million. This was the most intense and costly search in U.S. history up to that point. Her husband continued to fund private search efforts, but requested a judge declare Amelia death in absentia, and she was legally declared deceased on January 5, 1939. There are many theories, possible explanations, and conspiracies around Amelia's disappearance, but I know one thing for sure. Amelia lived her life with amazing tenacity and never let anyone or anything prevent her from pursuing her passion. For the next strange disappearance, I'd like to focus on aircraft. I could have chosen the story of flight MH370, the Malaysia Airlines flight that disappeared on March 8, 2014. Instead, the story I've chosen is that of Flight 19, which was a group of five aircraft that went missing at the same time on December 5, 1945, off the coast of Florida in the notorious Bermuda Triangle. Flight 19 was made up of five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers, and it was planned to perform a routine training exercise. 
all of the pilots were experienced and were just coming off the end of World War II, meaning none of the 14 men aboard were out of practice. These planes were fully fueled and checked and no issues were found. Other aircraft had already performed the same exercise earlier in the day and others were to participate in the same exercise later that same day. There was not a single cause for concern that anyone called out before the flight. They departed from Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale at 2.10 p.m. local time and flew on a bearing of 91 degrees, or due east, for 56 nautical miles, where they then commenced the bombing exercise portion of the training. After that was completed, they continued on their bearing of 91 degrees for an additional 67 nautical miles before turning and heading on a bearing of 346 degrees, basically due north, for a duration of 73 nautical miles. They were then to turn left again to follow a heading of 241 degrees, which is west by southwest, and follow that for 120 nautical miles, at which point the exercise would be over and the squadron would return to NAS Fort Lauderdale. Though that is what was supposed to happen, it unfortunately is not what happened. By 3.40 p.m., the next crew was preparing their planes for the same exercise. Lieutenant Cox had his radio on and overheard a transmission. I don't know where we are. We must have got lost after that last turn. Lieutenant Cox responded, This is FT-74, planar boat calling Powers. Please identify yourself so someone can help you. It took a few moments, but eventually the calling person identified themselves as Taylor with a call sign of FT-28 and had the following conversation. FT-28, this is FT-74. What is your trouble? Both of my compasses are out, Taylor replied, and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm over land, but it's broken. I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. FT-28, Taylor, was instructed to put the sun on his port wing and fly north. There were also attempts to initiate triangulation beaconing and switching radio frequencies, but the direction-finding attempts failed, and Taylor refused to switch frequencies so he could remain in contact with the rest of his squadron. There were additional radio messages overheard from Taylor or the other pilots, either directed toward the NAS or the pilots of the squadron. They are as follows. At 4.45 p.m., we are heading on 030 degrees for 45 minutes. Then we will fly north to make sure we're not over the Gulf of Mexico. 4.59 p.m., change course to 090 degrees due east for 10 minutes. 5 p.m., damn it, if we could just fly west, we would get home. Head west, damn it. 5.24 p.m., we'll fly 270 degrees west until landfall or running out of gas. Can I get a weather report? At 5.50 p.m., several land-based radio stations triangulate the beacon as approximately 100 miles east of the Florida coast as well as north of the Bahamas. This information, however, was not transmitted at regular intervals or in such a manner that the pilots of Flight 19 acknowledged the transmissions at all. At 6.04 p.m., Holding 270, we didn't fly far enough east. We may as well just turn around and fly east again. 7.04 p.m., Taylor's last known radio transmission. All planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. And then, nothing. All bases, ships, and aircraft in the area, whether military or civilian, were alerted of the situation and asked to report if they came across anything or had any information. After dark at 7.27 p.m., two quote-unquote flying boat aircraft were launched from NAS Banana River and instructed to conduct a grid pattern search of the last known position of Flight 19. To make matters even more strange, one of those aircraft, the PBM-5 Mariner, made a routine radio transmission shortly after takeoff and a short time after that disappeared completely from radar. 
The tanker, the SS Gaines Mills, reported seeing what they described as, quote, flames from an apparent explosion at 9.15 p.m. that, quote, towered 100 feet into the air and burned for 10 minutes. The captain of the Mills, Shauna Stanley, searched the area for survivors among what was described as a, quote, pool of oil and aviation gasoline. It was presumed that the PBM-5 Mariner suffered a mid-air explosion and all 13 U.S. Navy personnel aboard were declared dead. The wreckages of Flight 19 have never been found, although many attempts have been undertaken and other Avenger aircraft have been recovered. One last thing to note is that between the years of 1942 and 1945, 95 aircraft were lost after departing from NAS Fort Lauderdale. Maybe this Bermuda Triangle thing is just as mysterious as the stories make it out to be. Let's move from aircraft to seagoing vessels. There are so many stories and legends to choose from, and a lot of them seem to be centered around the Bermuda Triangle. Seriously, you need to do your own research into that place and some of the stories that surround it. The ship I want to talk about on this episode, however, is the SS Bakimo. This story will be much more brief than the last two, as there's really little to go on. The SS Bakamo started life as a Swedish vessel in 1914, but was later given to Great Britain at the end of World War I as a means of reparations by Germany for shipping losses during the war. In 1921, it was acquired by the Hudson Bay Company and given its final name, the SS Bakamo. Over the next decade, she completed at least nine successful trading missions to the northern coastal area of Canada and exchanged goods for furs and pelts. However, on October 1, 1931, the Bakamo became stuck in pack ice. Fearing that the ship may sink, the crew abandoned the vessel and traveled over half a mile over the frozen water to the nearest town. They returned two days later, but the SS Bakamo was gone. It was found again a week later on October 8, again stuck in pack ice. By October 15th, the Hudson Bay Company sent aircraft to rescue 22 crew members and leave a skeleton crew of 15 behind to wait out the winter storm and return with the Bakamo in the spring. Those 15 people chose to build a wooden shelter approximately a short distance away and prepare for the long, cold winter ahead. On November 24th, a strong blizzard blew in. Following the storm, the crew decided to check on the Bakamo, but found that it was no longer there. They presumed the ship had been broken up among the shifting ice and sunk. However, a few days later, an Inuit seal hunter informed the crew that they had spotted the Bakamo about 45 miles away. The crew tracked the ship down and decided, after inspecting it, that it would not survive the winter and removed as many valuables from it as possible and transported them back by aircraft. The Bakamo was abandoned to her fate. However, the Bakamo never sank. In fact, she was spotted several times over the next 38 years. Here are those recorded sightings read directly from the research site I've linked in the show notes. A few days after the Bakamo had disappeared on November 24, 1931, the ship was found 45 miles south of where she was lost, but again was packed in ice. After several months, she was spotted again about 300 miles to the east. In March of the following year, she was seen floating peacefully near the shore by Leslie Melvin, a man traveling to Nome with his dog sled team. A few months after that, she was seen by a company of prospectors. March 1933, she was found by a group of Inupiat who boarded her and were trapped aboard for 10 days by a freak storm. August 1933, the Hudson Bay Company heard she was still afloat, 
but was too far a sea to salvage. July 1934, she was boarded by a group of explorers on a schooner. September 1935, she was seen off the Alaska coast, but no specific details were given. November 1939, she was boarded by Captain Hugh Polson, wishing to salvage her, but the creeping ice flows intervened and the captain had to abandon her. After 1939, she was seen floating alone without crew members numerous times, but had always eluded capture. March 1962, she was seen sailing along the Beaufort Sea coast by a group of Inuit. She was found frozen in pack ice in 1969, 38 years after she was abandoned. This is the last recorded sighting of the Bacamo. In 2006, the Alaskan government began work on a project to solve the mystery of the ghost ship of the Arctic and locate the Bacamo, whether still afloat or on the ocean floor. To date, she has not yet been found. There are a few things about this story that I find compelling. First is that the ship managed to stay intact and afloat after being stuck in ice so many different times. Consider how many stories we know of where a ship merely runs across a relatively small piece of ice and is brought to the bottom. To think that a ship launched in 1914 could withstand Mother Nature's worst for as long as she did is incredible. Next is the fact that so many salvage operations were conducted and ultimately failed. Again, ships that were far worse off had been salvaged for years, even raised from the depths, but somehow every attempt to salvage the Bacamo was met with unexpected danger and bad weather. Almost as if there was an unseen force at play. Last is that the ship still has not been found. Yes, she has likely sunk to the bottom by now and the ocean is vast, but consider the following. Wood floats. So even if the ship broke up, pieces of her would have been seen floating in the water or stuck in the ice that sank her. Also, with the sheer traffic and also technologies of 2006 or even today, it is odd that not a single trace of the ship has ever been found. You'd think that some geek with Google satellite images would have spotted something by now. Either way, it's a strange disappearance that has baffled the minds of enthusiasts, companies, and governments around the world. Let's stay in Alaska for our next one. The Bermuda Triangle, which we've already touched on in this episode, is extremely well known. There are other triangles, though. This includes the Devil's Sea, which is also known as the Dragon's Triangle, and at least 12 others that have been claimed to exist. The one I want to talk about, though, is simply known as the Alaska Triangle. This area, which is said to be between the points of Juneau, Anchorage, and Barrow, is incredibly large and consists of mostly uninhabited land untouched by man. It has been reported that during a 31-year period between 1988 and 2019, more than 16,000 people were reported missing inside the borders of the Triangle. To put that in perspective, that would be the equivalent of over 500 people a year, or nearly 10 people a week. At such an alarmingly high rate, why is this place not as well known as the Bermuda Triangle? The best that I can tell? Hollywood and marketing. The story that brought this place into the limelight was back in 1972. A flight consisting of four passengers departed from Anchorage on its way to Juneau, but never arrived and was never seen again. So, of all the stories that could have made this place a household staple, why did this flight of only four people do the trick? Well, because of who two of those people were. 
The pilot was a well-respected bush pilot of the area by the name of Don Johns. He was chartered to fly three passengers, Alaskan Congressman Nick Begich, his aide Russell Brown, and U.S. House Majority Leader Hale Boggs. When the story broke to the American people, it was nearly unbelievable. Search parties were sent out for more than a month, including 50 civilian aircraft, 40 military aircraft, and numerous boats and other vehicles. Not a single thing was ever found. Not a piece of the wreckage, not human remains, not debris or any personal belongings, nothing. Of course, you could just chalk that up to the fact that Alaska is a huge place and you wouldn't be wrong about that. Keep in mind, though, that this was a very experienced pilot with a plane that felt like an extension of his own body in an area that he was extremely familiar with and carrying very important people. In fact, Alaska bush pilots have been claimed to be some of the best pilots on the planet because of the many different types and rapidly changing weather conditions and patterns they have to fly in, not to mention the fact that they are going over completely uninhabited terrain with no means of resupply and very unlikely chances of rescue if they ever did survive going down. Yeah, these are pretty badass people. Other aircraft have disappeared under similar circumstances too. A military aircraft carrying 44 passengers disappeared completely and without a trace back in 1950. And in 1990, a Cessna 340 carrying four passengers met the same fate that flight in 1972 did, simply vanishing. While the Bermuda Triangle is a place that offers intrigue and conspiracies, the Alaska Triangle is a place that is nearly unmatched when it comes to the sheer number of those who have gone missing within its confines. And let's not forget that the population of Alaska is not a large one, just over 734,000 as of this recording meaning that at the current population numbers, more than 2% have gone missing in the last 31 years. The cause or reasoning for the missing persons is hotly debated, but range from dimensional tears to aliens to vortices. Regardless of the reason, I don't think I'll be traveling inside that triangle anytime soon. The last one I want to talk about falls under the mythical category, but maybe not. We've all heard of the lost city of Atlantis. We have all, also, likely heard of locations that claim to be, or people that claim to know, the location of this lost city. Well, here is one you may not have heard of. Helike. Modern science and archaeology are still learning about this place, but is believed to have been flooded following an earthquake and subsequent tsunami in the winter of 373 B.C., the poet Homer wrote about Helike, and other texts refer to this place, but it was mostly lost to history and only lived on in texts and stories. Oddly enough, five days before the disaster that befell Helike, all animals had fled the city, and there was, quote, an immense column of flames that were spotted not far away. In retrospect, there were signs that something bad was imminent in that area, something that repeated itself just over 400 years later in Pompeii. Throughout the years, many people were enthralled by the possibility of becoming rich and famous for finding the lost city of Atlantis, and some thought the city of Helike was that place. Many came to find the city lost to the pages of history, but it wasn't until the Helike project was formed in 1988 that the search really heated up. It was theorized that the ancient word poros might have referred to an inland lagoon rather than the accepted Corinthian gulf 
The thought was that the size and duration of the earthquake might have liquefied soil and literally sank the city below sea level. This meant that when the tsunami hit and the waters finally receded, the city would remain buried. Over time, rivers and other erosion would have caused sediment to fill in the walls and the buildings, effectively removing it from sight and other means of detection. In 1994, and with the theory mentioned before guiding them, state-of-the-art tools and equipment were brought in, and eventually a building was found. This was false hope, though, as the building was not part of the place they were hoping to find. However, in 2001, more than two millennia after it was lost, researchers found the lost city of Halike buried in an ancient lagoon near the city of Rizomilos. Excavations are still happening each summer, and archaeologists bring items to the surface and learn more with each dig. Now, I'm not claiming the city of Halike was the lost city of Atlantis. I'm simply pointing out that the existence of Atlantis is something we shouldn't scoff at when someone mentions it. For more than 2,000 years, there was a well-documented place that had existed and was lost to cataclysmic events. We knew it existed, had proof, evidence, but still couldn't find it. I believe it would therefore be irresponsible and, quite frankly, egotistical of us to simply believe that because we haven't found something by now means it never existed in the first place. Don't agree with me? Consider doing a bit more research on the lost cities that were found underwater off the coasts of Cuba and another off the coast of Japan. Before I end this episode, I want to take the opportunity to talk about strange disappearances that still happen today. Every single day, people go missing in this world. Some of their own accord, some against their will, others accidentally. It is terrible that these things happen to grown adults, of course, but even more horrifying and saddening when they happen to children. It is a sad fact that some of the missing children are used as slaves in the sex industry. That's why I wanted to mention an organization that is doing wonderful work to not only rescue and reunite these children back with their families, but provide support, education, and therapy for them throughout their journey back. Additionally, this organization partners with local law enforcement wherever they go in an effort to arrest and hold accountable the monsters that prey on the innocent. The organization is called OUR, which stands for Operation Underground Railroad. I was first introduced to them by a celebrity by the name of Jim Caviezel. He is a devout Christian and, as part of his religious beliefs, works to bring peace to the world and correct injustices. As a part of this, he has teamed up with OUR to drive financial and on-the-ground support for what they do. I would encourage you to use the link I've provided in the show notes and check out OUR's organization, story, and read some of the stories that have been shared by the survivors who have been rescued. Strange disappearances are still happening today. And it is my belief that we should not turn a blind eye to those that can be prevented, found, and saved. Whether that means through mental health assistance, proper education, programs, or rescue, we should all strive to do more. So that about wraps up this episode, but I would encourage you to do your own continued research and education. I'll make sure to link to the things I discussed in this episode in the show notes. On the next episode, I will be discussing secret societies. If you have any feedback, feel free to send me an email at podcast at therenpo.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-N-P-O.com. 
I would also appreciate it if you left a review wherever you podcast. That helps this show be discoverable to others and helps me understand where things can be improved. Don't forget to subscribe and auto-download new episodes so you don't miss any of the future topics. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode.